Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we have Ernest Ledbetter as our guest. Ernest is a pastor at Mount Pisgah Missionary Baptist Church in Chicago, and he's also a graduate of Northern Seminary. Welcome to the podcast, Ernest. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much, Laura. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Ernest, um, there are so many things I want to ask you, uh, but, uh, you know, we want to kind of stick to the task. But tell us um, first about your heritage in this church with your family, because, okay. that's uh, you know, our, our listeners, I think, would like to hear this. Okay. Well, uh, I have the pleasure of pastoring the historic uh, Mount Pisgah Missionary Baptist Church, uh, organized in 1926. We've been in this location at 4600 uh, South King Drive since 1962. Uh, it's one of the uh, first offices of Martin Luther King's civil rights movement here in Chicago. Uh, he aligned with the pastor, uh, two pastors before me, Pastor Joseph Wells, uh, who was who pastored here for 58 years, who was very great friends with my grandfather, Pastor E.F. Ledbetter Sr., who pastored on the west side of Chicago from 1939 to 1969. Um, and so uh, when my grandfather passed away, my dad was 11 years old, and uh, they sought refuge here at Mount Pisgah in about 1972, 1974. My dad started uh playing drums here at the church. Uh, he also began preaching here. He got very close with Pastor Wells. It was his driver where he then met my mother. And, uh, they were married here in the same sanctuary and all of that. And so uh, we have a landmark status now. Uh, and so it's a wonderful congregation that we began eight years ago with 180 members in a sanctuary that holds 1,800. And the Lord has blessed uh, Within the first three to four years, we had about uh, 1,600 to 1,700 new members to join. Wow. wow. So uh, that's uh, where we are now. And so, but, so it's been strange to be virtual and in person as well during this yeah. pandemic. Ernest, is your, was your father a pastor too? My father still is a pastor, yes. Yeah, he yeah, pastors a but... uh, great amount Hebron on the, uh, further south than me. I thought he was the pastor of this church before you. No, he it, okay. he could have been, but okay. the Lord called him to a different church. Okay. So, but it was very strange when I ended up getting the call to become pastor here. It was it was a very strange, very strange call. I knew I knew that I would pastor somewhere, but I didn't think it would be here. <laughs> okay. Tell us about this church building. Uh, is built in 1912 by the great Chicago architect Alfred L. Schuler. Uh, it's it looks like a uh, library or a bank, uh, as the Reformed uh, Jews did not want a traditional-looking uh, uh, building. And so uh, it was Chicago Sinai Synagogue. Uh, shout out to Seth Limmer, uh, one of the rabbis over there. I was able to see him today at the Interfaith uh, Breakfast. Uh, their congregation is further north now, and he was able to come in and show me a lot of 
hidden gems and the architecture uh, that the average Black Baptist would not have picked up on, uh, <laughs> considering uh, where the Torah would have been if they were still in the building. It's so it's so small as opposed to the traditional uh, Jewish synagogues where uh, that the Torah would have been a huge table and everything. It's a small little area. I've always wondered what it was. And so uh, it was, it, we housed Corpus Christi Catholic uh, Church and School here for a little while. What's it been like, let's say the, the downside of pastoring during this uh, COVID season? Uh, we're gonna get to the positives as well and what you've learned, but I just wonder, you know, I've, I've talked to Gerald Dew uh, Pastor yeah. Gerald Dew and to Pastor Marshall Hatch, and they suffered a lot during COVID in ways that, um, I mean, let's just put it clearly, uh, some of the white, more wealthy communities did not suffer. Yeah. So what's it been like for you? Hmm. Well, um, the negatives have been, uh, Dr. McKnight, you know me, I tested off the charts in the Myers-Briggs for extroversion. Uh, and so, um, I'm, I'm the type of pastor that I love doing hospital visits. I love doing home visits. Uh, this, this, this is prom and graduation season. I love doing those things, you know, going to see the kids off, go to, going to football games, retirement parties. So, uh, there's a, there's a saying that the shepherd ought to smell like the sheep. And so uh, I love interacting in non-church settings with my members. And so just the mere fact of not being able to be a part of their lives, uh, number one, not being able to see them in the sanctuary Sunday to Sunday or Wednesdays for Bible study or prayer meeting, uh, losing, severing that time uh, and having to go virtual. It's not the same dynamic. You can't hug members, you can't shake the uh, hands of your elder men or can't, uh, the little kids are not running up to you and they're, they're getting older now. Uh, so you've had to watch them grow on Facebook. Uh, another negative is that there is, um, what the pandemic kind of snatched away and, the, and particularly the black church experience, there's a lot of call and response mm. in the preaching. And then the, the singing and everything. So it, it literally muted uh, a, wow. a very important part of the culture. Uh, whereas our, it, 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 form, it forced a lot of people to change their even their preaching style. Uh, mm -hmm. Because you can use your voice dynamic and emphatic pauses. And then the people will say, go ahead and come on, preacher. <laughs> All of that's gone. Hmm. All of that's gone when you're completely virtual. So uh, it's kind of a negative and a positive. It's caused us to go from being machine guns to sniper rifles. Hmm. Uh, because whereas with the more people you could, you, you can have filler and, uh, you know, a little more drama. Now every word counts, every pause counts, uh, every sentence counts. Uh, and then financially, uh, there's a lot of people that uh, won't give if they don't see the building. Uh, so those are some of the negatives that I've experienced. Uh, just, uh, you know, people are grieving. So it's so sad that we weren't able to hold funerals. Uh, 
weddings and different things like that. I was supposed to go to uh, the Virgin Islands to perform a wedding. And then I was supposed to go to New Orleans and to the Bahamas and also <laughs> to Aruba, all in the same year. And none of these trips I was going to have to pay for. And the pandemic <laughs> killed all of that. So. Oh, that is so sad. <laughs> Yeah. That's the perk of pastoring right there. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll those islands. We've been to Aruba. Uh we've been to Bahamas too. That's uh that's sad. I'm I feel bad for you. I feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that one. That is really good. Well, what's what's on the flip side? What are some things that you feel like um you have learned and that your congregation has learned through this process? Were there signs of creative adjustments that happen during this season as well? The, the positive that I've seen is that um, we serve a God that creates out of chaos mm. and he's able to make beautiful things happen in, in, in situations that we um, are uncomfortable with. And, yeah. and God is very comfortable with change and movement and adaptation, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I think about Hebrews 1, God who at sundry times and in divers manner spoke to the fathers through the prophet has now tra- chosen to speak through his son. He, he's fine with modus operandi changing. It's, <laughs> it's we, the church, that are stuck in our traditions and stuck in our expectations that, you know, the shutdown and the sheltering in place and the have to go virtual, it's, it, there are elements of it that we should have already doing. Uh, Mm. It was because of the shutdown that my church finally got a website. Yeah. I I began pastoring here eight years ago as a uh, young whippersnapper, 24 turning 25, or 25 turning 26. And I was trying to get a website, trying to get a website. They were like, no, we don't really understand the benefit. (laughs) So then we got a camera. We got a camera. We got a media ministry. So the pandemic, if it weren't for the pandemic, I would not have a website and a media ministry as of yet. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I was in the midst of celebrating my, I think it was my sixth year anniversary. And uh, that particular Sunday, the, the mandates were going out and uh, it affected attendance very much. So that day people were, you know, fearful. Um, and, you know, uh, the mandate went out that uh, it was actually March 15th. And so the city officially shut down and we went virtually immediately, never looking back. Um, and, and it created some um, it created, I think, the fear and the uncertainty. Was a baptism into a new perspective of ministry, uh, the need for social engagement and i feel like that it it brought us back to the first century of having to figure out our faith walk together as opposed to see you sunday see you wednesday now we have to create innovative ways to serve one another to be with one another Um, and then the good thing is that there's a lot of stuff that we were doing that was just unnecessary that we don't have to go back to but you know the great thing is that um, it put a lot of it put a lot of trust back into the leadership, I think, 
and mm-hmm. it created a new it created a new culture. It created a new new culture, and I, I'm uh, thankful for that. Mm-hmm. You know, because of the uh, COVID, and because you guys created a media ministry, I got to watch you sing. <laughs> and on Sundays, I'd see, I don't know, I'd get home from church and there's there's Ernest singing. <laughs> and, uh, so you do have quite a singing ministry yourself. Yes. Yeah. Tell us about that. Uh, my, uh, my family, um, everybody in my family is either a pastor, musician, or a singer, or a combination of all three. And mm-hmm. so uh, my my mother and father both sing. My three sisters, uh, we have a Christian singing group. Uh, we do praise and worship, quartet, all kinds of music. Uh, and so uh, I, I I have a lot of pastor friends who uh, couldn't adapt, and they don't have the singing gift to you know they needed the choir, they needed the praise team, so they they really. They really uh, were kind of without. And so, you know, doing church in the living room or doing it here in my office or being in the sanctuary by myself with just the musicians. Uh, there's, a, there's a black church saying when they're introducing the preacher, uh, they don't want to uh, give too much of his resume and have him have too many accolades. Uh, they'll say he can sing his own song. He can pray his own prayer. He can preach his own sermon. They'll hear ye him. <laughs> And so one of the benefits is that I can sing my own song, I can pray my own prayer, and I can preach my own sermon. And so um, it's it's a blessing having that ability, but it's also exhausting because you got to not only have a fresh sermon that's culturally relevant, hermeneutically sound, theologically correct, but you also have to have some hymns or praise and worship songs that are pertinent, you're doing all the liturgical planning and everything yourself, and you don't want Mm. to sing the same songs over and over again because, you know, your congregation can be petty and they can complain. You sang that last week, so, you know, you got to coordinate, you got to coordinate with your musicians, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Now, you have have an album. Is it out yet? Yes, yes. I I have music on Spotify. Um, some of, I have two EPs, it's called, uh, After Church, um, and, uh, the album is called The Midnight Musical, and I have several singles and everything that's out, so the music that I do is actually, uh, a creative rebellion uh, against everything I'm expected to be traditionally, <laughs> suit and tie, uh, you know, there are certain the Negro spirituals and the, the hymns of Amazing Grace and all of that, all of the traditional trappings of who I am as pastor. Well, the music that I'm inspired to make doesn't fit the spectrum of traditional black church music. It's in heavily influenced by Temptations, Curtis Mayfield, Marvin Gaye, Donnie Hathaway, even Sting and the Police. <laughs> For me, these are musical influences. And we only listen to traditional music on our way to church. And then afterwards, <laughs> mom was playing blues. I mean, you could hear all kinds of stuff. And so those musical influences uh, are in me, or 
time. And so I, I, I'm trying to create music for an audience that probably would not be drawn to traditional gospel music. Because there's many times that I'm not drawn to traditional gospel or CCM. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I created music. It's not what you listen to probably on your way to church, but it's good for after church when you <laughs> don't really want to turn on other things. You still want to keep the day kind of holy. You know, but it's still a good time. <laughs> that's, when, that's when I've heard it. You know, uh, during this COVID season, um, one of my uh, teammates on the okay. high school track team, really? African-American, okay. um, unbelievably fast. He set records everywhere he went. Wow. And I think he ended up running at Judson College. But I discovered just as the COVID broke that, that Michael Cole was a pastor. Wow. So, and then Michael Cole grew up in our hometown, and Chris and I both remember their whole family sang. So, wow. like the Cole family and the Ledbetter family, need to get together <laughs> get and together. Have, some, have some have some music. Um, uh, Laura, do you have, do you have something you were going to ask? I would just love to hear more about your congregation because it sounds like you experienced some pretty substantial growth during your tenure at Mount Pisgah. So tell us a little bit about, um, yeah, just the changes that you've seen among your people, how they've changed and grown over your tenure there and um, how they weathered the COVID experience as part of that. Because I know just talking to pastors, um, the healthiest of congregations have experienced a lot of change in the last couple of years. Um, and it sounds like you were on a, a trajectory. Um, how has this impacted that? It really, um, well, it knocked the wind out of all of us, uh, black, brown, white congregations, Asian congregations. It, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it knocked us all down. Um, I'm blessed in that, though this is a, historic and traditionally uh, traditional Black Baptist Church in Chicago, they're very progressive in their thinking uh, and and in their expression of their faith. Uh, they were always on the cutting edge, uh, i.e. even partnering with Martin Luther King back in the day was kind of, it was very cutting edge because of yeah, was. race relations with Mayor Daley back then and other politicians. Uh, many churches uh, would not allow King to come speak. And so, um, because, I mean, they would shut your water off at your church, they would cut the lights off. Uh, members that are still alive here uh, that remember when he came in 1964 uh, talk about how they had across the street police dogs and rifles all in the balcony and everything while he was uh, preaching here. So, they were, they've always been cutting edge. And so as they've aged, they're still, they understood, hey, we got to go virtual. I didn't get a lot of pushback. Hey, we have to do Zoom Sunday school. And hey, we got to do virtual Bible study. I don't know when we're going back in the building. I, and you had some, you had some people that, um, that kind of complained, but I under, the, the Holy Spirit guided me. None mm-hmm. of them have ever lived through a pandemic. So don't respond to any of the critiques or complaints that you receive because none of us know what we're doing. Right. <laughs> and, right. Uh, even my, even my, my, my own pastor, my father, uh, 
would have to we would be consulting about what do we do week to week. He's like, I don't I've never had to pastor through this, so I don't have a precedent. So my congregation, when I got here, I was I was twenty five turning twenty six. I was the youth ministry. Uh, the average age of everyone that was here was, I would say, 57. Uh, and the blessing of Mount Pisgah is that uh, they they have been blessed with old age. Um, usually a young pastor comes into a traditional church and the plague is that the first few months he's plagued with funerals. That people have been waiting until they get a new leader to kind of pass away. One of our eldest members passed away at 105, 105 or so. And when I visited her at 103, she stood up the entire time. And we were there 45 minutes. <laughs> and we have we have a lot of stairs here. Uh, we have we do have a chairlift, but most of my seniors, if not all of them, hit those stairs. They're, they're still working out, doing different things like that. So, um, they they wanted me specifically to draw the millennial crowd, you know, the people kind of 49 and below. And the Lord blessed and sent that. And so I've been a, a bridge of generations, which was perfect for me. Dr. Manet, I, I kind of wrote in my uh, doctoral thesis about how being called at seven years old and beginning public ministry at 12, you're not accepted by your peers and then you're not you're not accepted by your uh your elders because you're not old enough and so you're looked upon as kind of like this foreign object and so i've been stuck in between generations since i was seven and so it finally made sense when god planted me here to be pastor where i would have to then again be a bridge between the chasm of generations and finally life made sense of trying to get some of the younger uh it, I, I, I've referenced you a lot, Dr. McKnight, on, on reading Romans backwards on yeah. who the strong and who the weak are. And so sometimes my young people can be weak. Sometimes they can be strong. Sometimes my elders can be strong. Sometimes they can be weak. And you got you have younger people that want an older traditional experience and you have older people within my congregation that want a more contemporary feel. Mm. And so it's like a gospel gumbo. That keeps me on my knees, and keeps me on my knees, and keeps me on my toes. Because just because they're young doesn't mean they want the skinny jeans gospel. And just because they're older doesn't mean that they want the more traditional. <laughs> so it's a it's a mixed bag here. Mm. Yeah. Come that's, on, that's, come that's on. So fun, <laughs> so fun. Um, tell tell us. Um, you know, maybe this will be uh, the last question because um, we're going to run out of time. Tell us what your uh, daily routines are like as a pastor during a week, like your Monday, your Tuesday. What what kind of I, – I see you – you've got a lot of services. It's not just Sunday morning. <laughs> well, daily – my daily routine, um, my dad uh, trained us – to try to do at least three things for the kingdom a day. Hmm. Uh, make some calls, do some reading, uh, maybe get your uniform together, get your lesson plan together. So um, today I woke up and um, 
my dad and I and a few other preachers that are in our kind of reading circle, we begin the day before we drink coffee, drink water, go to the bathroom. We begin uh, with reading an excerpt from Sidlow Baxter's Wink My Heart. Yeah, diehard Baxter fans. And so we read through that and then that starts the day. Uh, I go to the gym and listen to music and kind of meditate while I'm working out. Uh, think about what I'm going to teach for Bible study. Think about what I'm going to teach on Thursday uh, for my deacons. I'm training some young men to be uh, new deacons. Um, and then I'm, I'm chewing on and meditating on what I may preach the, uh, the following Sunday. Uh, I try to reach out on Facebook and Instagram to members who have seen or haven't seen. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I then I once I do what I've I've done for the day, I then unplug and do what I need to do just as a human being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How many how many official services do you let's say teaching times do you have a week at your church? Um, right now we only have on Sunday we have one service that's uh, streamed on Facebook Live and YouTube Live uh, at eleven o'clock. Uh, from 11 to about 12.05, 12.10, if we're running a little late. And then Wednesday at 6.30 p.m., we have uh, our Bible study. That's also on Facebook Live and YouTube Live. And then Thursday is my uh, is my deacons here in the building. And um, I've, I've taken them through a, a redeployment, I'll call it, uh, where I said the pandemic has caused me to have to reconfigure who I am as a pastor. And as you all are assisting me to take care of this congregation, you all going to need to reconfigure who you are as servants, as deacons. And so uh, that's on Thursdays. Then Friday, Saturday, Sunday is kind of my day to get my uh, dry cleaning together and get the car wash and, uh, you know, spend some time with family and then, uh, you know, come to church Sunday. Mm. All right. That's so good. Um, uh, Ernest. Well, participate in, we finished our D-Men program at Northern Seminary. And in that process, our cohort, his cohort, produced a book called Wise Church. Yes. And I want to commend uh, to our audience the chapter that you wrote. And I've told people that I think it's my favorite chapter in the book. Of course, I wrote wow. one too. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's my favorite. But your chapter on sort of... Um, I've told people it has, I don't know, it has a rhythm to it. It starts out one place and kind of gently moves along. Before long, it's really popping. And it's sort of the wisdom uh, of the African-American pastoral tradition. Yeah. Even about race and about Bible and about equality and about the struggle. Yeah. And I just want to commend you for, for the work you did, but also to the reader, to the listeners, that they would consider purchasing the book or finding a copy of the book and reading that chapter just to experience uh, something that we experienced in the classroom with you. But I'll never forget when we started talking about this, a wisdom culture and, you know, all the white guys in the class and the white women, they're going, yeah, this is going to be really fun. And, yeah. and you're saying that's the world in which I live. It's a wisdom culture. Mm. It, it's, it's truly, um, I the the scripture that um that I based the chapter on was uh that wisdom maketh the heart sorrowful. 
Uh, and so I, I wrote from the perspective of the African-American community in context are the sorrowful ones that can give wisdom. Uh, and yeah, yeah. Was, at the time, there was a lot of things going on racially in the nation. Uh, Trump was president and all of that. Uh, and there was a lot of there's a lot there was a lot of questions going on with a lot of believers walking away from the faith because of misconceived notions about Christianity and it being the quote unquote white man's religion or was it given too much slavery and all of that. And so the rhythm that you speak of um, is my love for jazz. And so I kind of write my papers and my sermons. Um, my father, you know, raised me from three, four years old listening to Miles Davis. And he, he, he says, he said, listen to Miles, he says the introduction is the is structure and there's the improvised middle that has a science and then by the end of the song it there's a structure again that's reminiscent of the beginning with a little variation and so uh, that feel of jazz and everything uh, i'm also english major so i studied beat poetry and all of that jazz poetry and so i didn't want to do another racial piece that just talked about slavery and Christianity. I wanted it to, I wanted it to be refreshing. I wanted it to be different mm. uh, and kind of get the feel of W.B. Du Bois' Souls of Black Folk, which changed my life, kind of mixed in with a little Henry Nowen's uh, Wounded Healer, another book that changed my life in seminary. So that was kind of like the motivation and the platforms that I kind of stood on with being authentic to the experience and the traditions that I come from. Mm. Yep. Well, it's, it's really, it really was an excellent chapter and I'm not, uh, I'm not the kidding that I, uh, I tell people that that's a chapter that you got to read to understand what, how wisdom actually works. Mm. So I, I want to, uh, Ernest, I know you're a busy man, a pastor, and I, I just want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us on this podcast. Yeah. And I want to commend your voice to our listeners. And Laura, at this point, will take it away and sign us off. Sure. Well, thank you for spending some time with us today. And we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thanks so much. 